Tonight's scripture reading will come from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We don't depend on history for our faith. Our faith depends on the Word of God. The Bible says that God's Word is what brings faith into our lives. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. With all that said, though, there are some lessons that we can learn from history. There are some things that have happened in the distant past and even in the recent past that can inform us and instruct us and to help us think about what's really important about where we find authority and where we find faith. And it's about that subject, history, that I want to talk to you for a few minutes this evening. I'd like to talk about the doctrine of sola scriptura, or if you put it in English, by scripture alone or by scripture only. And this doctrine, this idea is one that the Bible teaches. It's one that's affirmed throughout scripture, and yet it's not one that's universally affirmed by our religious neighbors. And so I begin this evening with a lesson from history, from church history. 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517, a man that you've probably heard of, Martin Luther, was a Catholic priest in a town called Wittenberg, Germany. And Martin Luther had a disagreement with some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church was doing. And so he wrote those things on a piece of paper, 95 theses, famously, and he nailed them to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And when you think about what Martin Luther did, he was a Roman Catholic priest himself, and he nailed these 95 theses to the door because he wanted the religious leaders, he wanted the Roman Catholic Church to read these things and understand that there were some things that were really wrong with with the way they were practicing and the way that they were conducting themselves. But if you notice, and, and you think about what he was objecting to, his major grievance was the sale of indulgences. Pope Leo X in those days was trying to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. It's a grand edifice. It's a large building, very ornate, and he was needing money and funds to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. And so the Pope thought, what we need to do is raise some additional funds so that we can have the money to do this. And he came up with this idea of selling indulgences. And what an indulgence was, was you could purchase merits. You could purchase the good deeds of others. And those good deeds would be applied to your account so that when you stood before God, you could be forgiven on the basis of your good deeds that you'd purchased, these indulgences. And Martin Luther saw the effect of this. There was a man, a Catholic priest by the name of John Tetzel that came to Wittenberg And he was selling indulgences to people and people were going into debt so that they could buy these indulgences so that they could be sure that their souls were saved. And Martin Luther ran into a man in the street, one of his parishioners. And the man was drunk as he could be. And Martin Luther confronted him and said, don't you know that drunkenness is a sin? Don't you know that you can't live this way? And the drunkard said, oh, it's no problem. I bought some indulgences. All of this is forgiven. And that just really got to Martin Luther. And so he wrote down these 95 theses and his major grievance was this, 
that the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences to people so that they could be forgiven, and there was nothing in the Bible about this. It's also worthy of note that what Martin Luther did was he wrote these things down in the Latin language. That was the language of the scholars, and that was the language of the priests. He didn't write these things in German, which was the language of the people. It was never really his intention to start a reformation of any kind. It was just, he, uh, in, in terms of a broad sense, he just wanted for people to take seriously, those who were priests and leaders, to take seriously what they were doing. But these 95 theses, people agreed with them. The disagreements that he had with what the Roman Catholic Church was doing, they were so popular that they were translated and they were printed and they were reprinted and they were distributed. And these ideas that Martin Luther had, that the church shouldn't be selling indulgences and things like that, these ideas caught fire and began what is known broadly as the Protestant Reformation, protesting against the Roman Catholic Church. But again, what Martin Luther was trying to do was just reform the Roman Catholic Church at that particular time. Well, as these ideas gained popularity, again, all this was about 500 years ago, Roman Catholic leaders began to notice that people were listening to these 95 theses, and they were talking about these things, and they decided that it was important to, to publicly confront these ideas. And so what they did is they set up a debate between Martin Luther and a priest named John Eck, and this happened in 1519. And this debate happened in Leipzig, Germany. And what basically was happening was Martin Luther was called by the Roman Catholic authorities to give a defense and to make his, po- make his case. And then John Eck, speaking on behalf of the Roman Catholic establishment, John Eck was going to answer the challenges and the theses of Martin Luther. He was going to do this publicly. And several notable things happened during this debate. But most of it brought two major ideas. You see, what would happen, at least in Martin Luther's thinking, what would happen was Martin Luther would open the Bible and he would say, forgiveness is something that God offers. And and he offers it on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross. And forgiveness is not something that could be bought and sold. It's not something that could be purchased like an indulgence. Forgiveness and cleansing from sin is something that Jesus did at the cross. And, And he would quote scripture And then John Eck would answer and he would say, yes, what you're saying is true, but church council such and such and church tradition so and so and Pope so and so have decreed and have written and have made these things known. And so he answered, John Eck did, Martin Luther's arguments from the Bible by appealing to church tradition and by appealing to papal decrees and councils and things like that. And Martin Luther began to think about the way he was being answered and the way this was going. And two major ideas in his mind developed. Number one, Martin Luther developed the idea that Scripture is all somebody needs for faith and practice. There is a lot that I would disagree with Martin Luther about. I've read many of his writings. I know many of you have as well. There's a great deal that I disagree with, but this he got right. Scripture is all one needs for faith and practice. We don't need popes to tell us. We don't need church councils to meet and to decide. And we certainly don't need church tradition as carried through history to be a source of authority in our lives. All we need is the Scripture. Sola Scriptura is how you would say it in Latin. The Scriptures alone. And another major idea that developed in this particular debate was this. The common man can understand Scripture. Because, see, what Martin Luther would do is he'd say, look, 
you agree, Mr. Eck, that the Bible is the word of God? Mr. Eck would say, yes, the church gave us the Bible. And then he would say, well, why can't people just read it for themselves? And, and John Eck was a smooth debater. And what he said was, nope, 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 Martin Luther, ordinary people cannot be trusted to interpret the Bible properly. They need a priest. They need the church to interpret the Bible for them. You can't understand the Bible on your own. You need somebody from the Roman Catholic Church to tell you and to translate for you and to interpret for you what the Bible means. Martin Luther disagreed with that very, very strongly. And that, that characterized those two ideas. Those, those ideas characterized the rest of what Martin Luther did. Well, in the ensuing decades after 1519, after these ideas began to be spoken about and debated, this became a widespread issue in Europe and other places. This reformation that was happening and people that were rejecting much of what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, so much so that the Roman Catholic Church began what was called the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent actually happened over a period of about two decades, about 20 years. It wasn't just one council. It was several, uh, one, one meeting, several meetings over two decades. And they just went back and they looked at everything that was being said and they codified and solidified a, a lot of what the Roman Catholic Church now believes. But at one of these particular meetings, and I want you to pay attention to this. Why are we going on this history lesson, John? We're going on this history lesson because it's relevant when you start talking to your neighbors who are Roman Catholic. It's hard to talk to people because we're not always on the same page about where we get our authority. And I want you to listen very carefully to what the Council of Trent decided back in 1546. One of their meetings, one of their councils, here's what they said. Where do we get our authority was the question on the table. Is the Bible only, is sola scriptura, is this, is this book, is this the only place that we find authority for our faith? And the council said, no, not just the Bible. This is their writing, okay, it's on the screen behind me. The council, following the examples of the Orthodox fathers, they said, receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence. In other words, we hold these things on equal planes. What do you hold on equal planes, Council of Trent? They said, number one, all the books of both the Old and New Testament. This is our authority, they're saying. And also the said traditions. You see that underlined there? as well as those appertaining to faith and morals having been dictated either by Christ's word of mouth or by the Holy Ghost preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession. So what they're saying at the Council of Trent is this. We get our authority and we, from two places. We get our authority from the Bible, yes, and equally we get our authority from church tradition. If the church was doing it as a tradition, it is authoritative equally as much as the Bible. That's what they're declaring at the Council of Trent in 1546. And they're doing this in response to the ideas that Martin Luther brought to their attention in 1517. Well, okay. They came out with this particular doctrine. Tradition is equivalent to Scripture. Tradition is equivalent to Scripture. They also, at a subsequent council, came out with a doctrine and said the Catholic Church alone should interpret Scripture. So they're, they're just codifying and making official what John Eck argued in 1519, that the Roman Catholic Church alone should interpret Scripture. 
And this is still what's being taught among our Roman Catholic friends even today. It's still what's being being held by those who are in leadership and in authority among our Roman Catholic friends. We would part company with them on both of these issues, on both of these matters as God's people. Because the Bible does teach that we find our authority in Scripture alone. So when we're talking to our Roman Catholic friends, I've got friends who are Roman Catholic. I know you probably do as well. A lot of times we, we have a breakdown in our communication because they're saying authority comes from Scripture and it also comes from Catholic tradition. Oh, and even today they would add this, papal councils or papal uh, authority and council decrees, those things as well would be held equivalent, equivalent with the Bible and with church, with church tradition. They would say all three of these things are sources of authority. This is how we find our faith. This is how we know what to do. So even though the Bible doesn't say it, if the Pope tells me to do it, or if a council votes and agrees, or if church tradition tells me to do it, then it must be authorized by God. It must be okay for me to do this. Even though the Bible has nothing to say about this particular issue, like praying to Mary or something like that, as long as the Pope says it's okay, there's authority for us to do that. This is what's being argued even today. As a matter of fact, there's even a book that was written not many years ago by a Roman Catholic scholar, and the title of the book is Not by Scripture Alone. Interesting title. What he's saying is the Roman Catholic Church has it right, and all these other religious groups that want to go back to the Bible and just live by the Bible and do what the Bible says, they've got it wrong. You can't find your faith by Scripture alone. That's what this guy's arguing in that particular book. Why, is the, why does this matter? It matters because what's the fundamental difference between what you believe and what your Roman Catholic friend and neighbor believes? The fundamental difference Holy relics, veneration of Mary, transubstantiation, that's the doctrine that the, um, the fruit of the vine literally becomes the blood of Jesus and the, the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus in a miraculous way during communion. Uh, confession to priests, you know, going into the little closet and, and, and giving your confession to a, a person. Don't read about that in the Bible. Where, where do you get that from? Veneration of saints taking saints and celebrating them and praying to them and reaching out to them for, for help and for guidance and for instruction. Uh, penance, doing penance, taking your rosary and saying the Hail Mary, things like that. Uh, extreme unction, the, the Roman Catholic priest comes and is able to give you absolution while you're on your deathbed, things like that. The doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of the Holy Eucharist, the idea that once you're a Roman Catholic, you can take mass and things like that. Um, apocryphal books, those extra books that Roman Catholics have in their Bibles. All of those things, all of those things rest on one pillar that you need to be aware of, and the pillar is church tradition. The church has traditionally embraced these things. None of them is found in the Bible. That doesn't matter because church tradition says this is what we do. And we hold church tradition to be equal in authority with the Bible. And as we're talking to our friends, you can ask someone, well, it doesn't say that you ought to venerate Mary. And it certainly doesn't say that Mary was a perpetual virgin and a lot of other things. The Bible teaches otherwise, and they'll say, I understand that. Church tradition and the popes and the councils say otherwise. And we hold them to be equivalent, even when it contradicts with the Bible. 
We hold them to be equivalent in authority. This is important. If we're going to think like fishermen, if we're going to reach the lost with the gospel message, we need to be aware of the fundamental assumptions that people make about where they get their authority. Have to. That's why it's important to have history lessons like this every now and then. What does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about itself? The Bible says exactly what Martin Luther concluded 500 years ago. Scripture alone is all one needs for faith and practice. The Bible teaches that. And the Bible also teaches that the common man can understand Scripture. That you can sit down in your living room or in your kitchen and you can open up your Bible and you can read your Bible and you can come to a conclusion on your own about what God wants you to do. You're capable. You can function as a human being independent of any religious group in order to know what God desires. You don't need somebody to interpret that for you. It might help if somebody came and helped explain. That's what, exact, that's what Philip did with the Ethiopian nobleman in Acts chapter 8. But you don't need somebody to interpret things for you. You can understand Scripture on your own. Six points about Scripture and about its authority this evening. I'll make these fairly briefly. What does the Bible say about itself? Number one, Scripture claims to be the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God, and that in and of itself is fundamentally important. Sanctify my disciples by truth. Your word, O God, is truth. John 17, verse 17. We heard just a moment ago, Isaac reads 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. Every divinely given writing is God-breathed, one translation has in 2 Timothy 3, 16. What we read in the 66 books of the Bible is the word of God And the Bible makes that claim for itself. Even Jesus made that claim. He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy in Matthew 4, verse 4, and he said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus believed in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. And he said that the things that are written are from the mouth of God himself. We must believe that. Where did this book originate? This book is from the mouth of God himself. He gave it to us. It is his word. And it so claims. Secondly, the scriptures claim to be God's finished revelation to man. Finished revelation. That word finished is important. God has said everything he's got to say through Christ... And Christ has said everything he's got to say through the apostles and inspired writers of the first century. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 8 through 10 talks about how tongues and prophecies and knowledge, the miraculous gifts of the first century, those would be done away when that which is perfect is come. Paul was writing those words in a time and an age when miraculous gifts were necessary for people to understand God's will and to know what God wanted. But Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, that when the perfected word of God was revealed, when all of the books of the Bible had been written down and recorded for us, then that which was in part would be done away. Miracles were not going to last forever. 
Miracles were just temporary until the word of God could be finished. And again, 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us that God's word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that, listen to this, 2 Timothy 3.17, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished for every good work. What the Bible is saying about itself in 2 Timothy 3.17 is, if I'll read the Bible and if I'll do what the Bible says, every good work that God wants us to do is found in his word. And I can be complete by following and obeying the teachings of his word. That's what that passage argues. If I can become complete by listening to and obeying the word of God, then what else do I need to listen to? Why would I need church tradition? Why would I need popes and councils to tell me more? If everything we need to live faithful to Jesus is found in the word, why do we need anything additional? Scriptures are God's finished revelation to man. Number three, by reading Scripture, the Bible says, we can understand everything God wants us to know. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 3 and look at verses 3 through 5. Ephesians 3, verses 3 through 5. A great passage about inspiration and about how we know God's will. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 3, that it was by revelation that God made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already. So God told Paul something miraculously and Paul took that miraculous information given to him and he wrote it down, verse 3, by which, verse 4, when you read, he says, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So what Paul is saying in verses 3 and 4 is, I've taken the information that God revealed to me, I've written it down, and when you read what I have written down, you can have the exact same knowledge, the exact same information that I have. God has allowed us by Scripture to hear and to understand everything he wants us to know. I still got questions. I know you've probably got questions, things that aren't answered in the Bible. Did Adam have a belly button or not? Where did Cain get his wife? Things like that. Lots of questions. But everything God wants us to know, everything God says we need to know, is in the Scripture. It's been revealed by God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything pertaining to life and godliness has been revealed and given to us by God through the Scriptures. By reading Scripture, we can understand everything God wants us to know. Next, God cannot contradict himself. Scripture is always its own best commentary. But if something conflicts, if something doesn't harmonize, the problem is not in Scripture. The problem is with the way we're looking at it. Because God cannot contradict himself. Titus 1 verse 2 tells us plainly it is impossible for God to lie. He doesn't say one thing at one circumstance and period in time and then contradict himself later. It doesn't work that way. God is faithful. He is reliable. He does not lie. He does not break promises. And he certainly doesn't violate his own word. Much of what happens 
If you lean on church tradition and papal councils and degrees and authorities, much of what happens if you start doing those things contradicts what's written in Scripture. Where did that come from? It could not have come from God. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. Our God is not an author of confusion. Let all things be done decently and in order, the passage says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, we are challenged to study, to to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing God's word. That passage teaches us to be careful with how we handle the word of God, to be careful with how we understand and apply the principles that are found in God's word, because God doesn't contradict himself. In 1 John 4, verse 1, John challenged his brethren in an age of miraculous gifts to test the spirits. Somebody comes to your church building and says, God spoke to me. He told me thus and thus. 1 John 4, 1 says, don't believe every spirit. Don't believe everybody who says God spoke to him. You put those spirits to the test and see if they are from God, John says. How do you do that? You listen to the gospel, you open up the pages of scripture, and you pay attention to what the scripture says because the scripture is foundational to our faith. And God does not contradict himself. He doesn't put one thing in scripture and then through tradition or through a council or through a pope or somebody like that all of a sudden say, no, I didn't really mean that. Do something else. Test the spirits to see if they really come from God. God cannot contradict himself. Next. The Bible teaches that the traditions of men can and often do undermine the word of God. Even churches of Christ ought to be careful about how we handle human traditions. Human traditions can be helpful. They can be good. I'm glad that we meet at a consistent time on Sundays, aren't you? I don't have to guess from one week to the next when I need to get up and get dressed and get ready for services. It's the same time traditionally every week. Traditions can be helpful, but some traditions, if we're not careful, can be harmful. Mark 7, verses 6 through 13, Jesus accosted the Pharisees because by their tradition, they had undermined the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. They had undermined that. They had said, oh, that tradition doesn't matter because we've got something better that we want to do with our lives. And Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And there are many people today that still teach as doctrines the commandments of men. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15 teaches us to hold on to the traditions that we received from the apostles. The apostles taught the church to meet on the first day of the week. That's a tradition that comes from God. The apostles taught the church to be organized with elders and deacons. The Bible taught the church, excuse me, the, 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 the apostles taught the church how they ought to worship God and how they ought to live in a moral and righteous life, uh, lifestyle and do good works. Those are traditions that come from God. And the Bible says, hold on to those traditions. But there are a lot of other traditions that don't come from God. And we are wise to discern what does and what does not come from God, from the gospel. Because the traditions of men can and often do undermine the authority of God's word. 
And then finally, Christians are to give Bible reasons for faith and practice. We are to look to Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, for our faith and for our actions. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. What Paul wanted those Roman Christians to do is to remember the foundation of their faith. And what we need to do in the 21st century is the same thing, to remember that our faith comes from the Bible. It comes from the Word of God. It comes from the Scriptures. That's where we get our authority. That's where we get our foundation for faith and practice. Not from anybody or anything else. Sola Scriptura, only Scripture. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Turn there if you would. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. By the nature of the lesson, I haven't had you turn to many passages, but look at this one carefully with me for a moment. Colossians 3, 16. This was a church that was unsettled because people were bringing all kinds of crazy traditions and ideas in and saying, hey, we ought to do this to be more spiritual. We ought to do that to be more godly and closer to God. And a lot of what they were saying came nowhere from Scripture. It was just the doctrines of men. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to his brethren in Colossae and warned them about what was happening in the church where they met. And then he said this in Colossians 3.16. He said, brethren, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. By the way, you know why he told them to do that? Because when we teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it gets stuck in our heads. That's why. Yes, we worship God in our songs, but who among us can't sing trust and obey and remember the words of the song? Who among us can't sing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? The scriptures get stuck in our head when we do this. We're letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And then it says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then it says in verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name by the authority of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul told his brethren, you make sure that you've got a Bible reason, a gospel reason for everything you're doing. Every little thing that you're doing. Think about God's word and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because otherwise, you may be, you may be finding your authority elsewhere. James 1.21 warns us to receive with meekness, to receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We ought to listen to the word of God because it alone is the foundation of our faith. It gives us authority for how we live and how we act and how we think. And it alone can give us assurance that we're on the path that God has chosen for us. In our conversations with our religious neighbors, it's important to understand you may well have some assumptions about the Bible and about authority that the people that you're talking to don't assume. And you may well be saying some things about the Bible that other people don't agree with fundamentally, foundationally. And so my suggestion is simply this, before we begin talking to people about some of the other things like the veneration of Mary or extreme unction or things like that, 
let's come back to a more foundational discussion with our friends and say, what does the Bible say about itself? And where do we really get our authority? Equally importantly, the people of God need to hear book, chapter, and verse type of preaching. We just do, more so than ever. Book, chapter, and verse type of preaching. Because when we preach that way, when we give people the book and the chapter and the verse where we're finding our thoughts and where we're finding our authority, when we tell people this is where we're finding this particular doctrine, this particular idea, this particular issue, this is where we're finding what what God wants us to do. When we do that, we root people in the Word of God. And churches are healthier and Christians are healthier and lives are changed by God's word, by scripture alone. Let's let the scriptures be our foundation here at Katy. And let's make sure that everything we do, we find authority for in the word of God. If you're not a New Testament Christian, God desires for you to obey his word. His word teaches us that we come to Christ when we're baptized, immersed in water for the remission of our sins. And if we can help you do that tonight, or if we can help you by praying for you, we'd love the opportunity to do that. Won't you make your need known while together we stand and while we sing?